0: Hi everyone, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Expert Answers from Inside Scientific. Inside Scientific is the online environment for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content that helps you do your best work. Today, we are joined by Tal Holtzman. Tal is founder and CEO of Cambridge Neurotech, a company known for their electrophysiology solutions. He's here to speak with us about the latest neurotechnology for large-scale, high-resolution, extracellular, singular unit recording, combined with optogenetics in anesthetized, head-fixed, and freely behaving animals. Let's jump in. Why is it that your probes seem to offer excellent chronic uh, single-unit stability, where other electrode choices tend to struggle? That's a good question.
1: There's no single straightforward answer to that because I think there's a multiple, a multiple of uh, variables that come into when you think about the, the implant procedure and the probes themselves have properties which are conducive to keeping neurons alive and giving you good single-unit, good signal-to-noise, good data yield. The drives themselves are really small and mechanically robust, the implants are small and reducing shear forces and leverage on the animal's heads. Perhaps another factor I mean, we didn't talk about today but much of my my own data was wireless head stages so there was no tethering forces. Having said that though, people have replicated the data with tethered head stages. Yeah, a device that, that flexibility that we looked at between the probe, perhaps that's a factor as well in reducing that compliance mismatch between the probe and the and the tissue. There's no single best answer, I'm afraid, but it's a very okay. good question.
0: Perfect. Another question is, how do you go about reducing the sensitivity of your probes to light-driven photoelectric artifacts? Can you comment uh, on that?
1: Yeah, I think, I think that there's, there's a two, two-pronged attack here, which is um, you, can, you can play with the chemistry of the silicon itself to try to mitigate or quench evoked currents from, from the photoelectric artifact. And the other thing you can do is, is try to reduce the amount of light actually striking the electrode surface in the first place, so you could think of a a cloak of sorts. More than that, I'd be giving away a very important trade secret that competitors would absolutely love to understand, so I'm going (laughs) to close my mouth at that point. (laughs) Okay.
0: (laughs) All right, that's a good answer. Thank you. Yana has asked how deep you can go into the tissue with the probe, and similarly, Franklin has asked. Have you tried positioning the probes into more deeper brain structures like the amygdala, PAG, and what are the caveats of doing that?
1: Good question. And of course, I completely neglected to mention the length, the implantable lengths of the probes. So at present, the uh, probes come in lengths of six, eight, or nine millimeters. So you're going to get everywhere in a mouse, pretty much every most. Of a rat and similarly sized brains, we are. There are efforts afoot to develop longer probes, 20 or 25 millimeters long, for larger animals and deeper structures. That is work that's that's going to commence this year, and reasons to be optimistic about it. But for the time being, certainly for larger animals, primates and so on, we we are re- rather restricted to uh, nine millimeters or thereabouts sort of implantable length. I would mention in that context, though, that the the shuttle on the nano drive is actually designed to travel five millimeters um, and the last two and a half of those is that the if you can imagine the shuttle overreaches beyond the bottom of the drive so you can offset some of the if you're you can reach into a deep craniotomy so you can offset some of the skull thickness so you don't lose length on your probes that, that's a bit of a novel feature on the drives too
0: okay perfect hopefully that answers franklin and Janice' questions maybe this is just a uh uh, comment you had talked about the software available from ken harris's lab and jeffrey mentions that there's a new tool for spike sorting called kilosort and he wonders if you've tried that
1: yeah kilosort's entirely compatible uh with these probe arrays i think it, it's it's personal choice what you prefer to use that are both developed by the same group and they, they're going to give you very similar or identical outputs if you're using probes that have, say, multiple shanks, groups of 16 electrodes, let's say, then e- quick is going to be uh, absolutely up to the task of, of working with that bandwidth of data. If you're using, for example, the uh, straight line 64 channels on a single probe, single shank, perhaps Kilosort would be better to work with that. It's simply a faster algorithm, it's going to churn through a lot quicker. But the out- the output should be the same. There are, I think also in Kilosort, there are some features to track compensate for mechanical drift over time as well. So if the probe moves a little, or the brain moves a little over time, I think you can correct that in sort, or as you can't in cluster quick. So that might be, depends on the stability of your implant and the application that you have in front of you, that might be a, a game-changer for you.
0: Okay, perfect. So we've had a couple questions come in about the possibility to reuse chronic probes. Can you comment on that? I get asked that a lot.
1: Yeah, So so the answer is yes and no. Yeah, you've got to think about the construction of the implant and the the way it's built. It's mechanically it's quite fragile to pull that off the animal, break it all apart and rescue. When I tried originally, my success rate was well below 50% and my headache rate was pretty much about 80%. <laughs> so I think I think I gave up on it in the end and thought, well, it probably isn't cost effective. The other thing to bear in mind is you then need to test electrodes to make sure that they are what you think they are before putting it back into another animal. The device for doing that is called a Nano-Z impedance tester. They're about uh, nearly 4,000 bucks. If you haven't got one, that's that's a bit of an opportunity cost. And second thing is if your sites are not what they were when they were originally made, regrettably, I cannot share with you the recipe that we use to get them down to those low impedances. So whilst in principle you could try it, and I respect that people are on a budget, it's worth having a try, but it's pretty hard. Probably when you think about your labor and you factor that in, it's not cost effective. So I think it's safest to say chronic probes, uh, consider them as consumables. On the other hand, very quickly, the good news is the nanodrives are designed to be harvested and reused given the pretty robust stainless steel construction. So that, that's a, a cost saver right there.
0: Great. Okay. We have a question here. It's, it's maybe not so much geared towards your technology. It's a, it's a question, a general question about optogenetics that maybe you can answer. The question is, is it possible to inject the virus in one brain structure and stimulate another structure considering there are neural projections between both? structures. Has anyone ever tried that with success that you know? Yeah, I think the answer to that is yes, subject to a couple of
1: caveats. And So imagine you're injecting, let's say, a brainstem nucleus and you're, you're waiting for the opsin to transport to terminals that project somewhere. You could stimulate the nucleus itself and, and orthodromically activate spikes, or you could try and stimulate at the level of the terminals. I, I think it's, it's, it's a little more gray what happens when you stimulate terminals because they subject to, let's say, a sort of certain lability of response. They may or may not respond and, and it's not quite clear necessarily. They're also, terminals are likely to be spread over a much larger area, diffuse area, compared to a, a nucleus where you've got a dense cluster of cell bodies. So yes, it's possible, but uh, it's not necessarily plain sailing if that's how you design your experiment in the first place.
0: Okay, perfect. Let's ask one more question, just uh, keeping an eye on the time, and Natiel has asked, is it possible to use your silicone probes in other tissue types, like muscle, presumably, I don't know if that's skeletal muscle, but can you comment on other applications for those probes? As far
1: as I know, nobody's used it in muscle. You you could be the first. I'd I'd love to hear how that goes. In terms of outside the brain, spinal cord, dorsal root ganglions, so on, peripheral nerves are possible, not necessarily the easiest targets to get to in practice. There there are reasons to think that flexible technologies are more appropriate there, but again, it's certainly possible to penetrate a probe into a nerve, and if you think about those very small site probes, the the H1 with those tiny sites, 5 micron sites, it's quite attractive to imagine what that might do inside a peripheral nerve. One would imagine you could pick up myelinated axon, single unit resolution, but uh, no, not muscle, not gut, but um, yes, I'd love to know if you do that.